G'day everyone, this is Greg Rowan. Welcome to episode 47 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast. And today I'm really honoured to be joined by Dr. Alessandra Geisha, who is the first colorectal surgeon in the world to be fellowship trained in both paediatric and adult, adult colorectal surgery. She is the medical director of the colorectal transitional care at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, as well as a surgeon at the Ohio State University Rexner Medical Center's Division of Colon and Rectal Surgery. Welcome, Ellie. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It is. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here today. I've been wanting to get you on for a while because uh, you're one of the, one of the doctors I most admire in the world for everything you're doing for our community. So, Let's just start right from the beginning. So why did you want to become a doctor, Ellie? Yeah, so my earliest memories of wanting to be a doctor is around third grade, second grade-ish. When I was trying to decide, I was always a very a serious child, so it comes really as no surprise that I was pretty early on wanting to determine what I was going to do with my life. And it was really important to me that I really wanted to make a difference in the world and do something that was influential and to help people. I had a, a strong affinity and aptitude for science and the human body and anatomy just fascinated me. So all those things combined kind of led me towards uh, wanting to be a physician. And about second grade, third grade, I decided I wanted to become a pediatrician. And that kind of morphed eventually over time and over years into finally getting into, into medicine. And then uh, over time, my desire to become a pediatrician kind of changed into, into surgery. Why did you actually choose the colorectal field when you chose to become a surgeon? Yeah. Uh, so I initially was in general surgery training and uh, I pediatric surgery, since kind of pediatrics was always my initial love in medicine, I had done rotations in in uh, pediatrics and pediatric hemonc is actually what I thought I was going to go into. But during those rotations, there would be the pediatric surgeon there with the hematologist and the oncologist. And I thought, that their work was far more fascinating. And then I did my first surgery rotation and I was just hooked, hook, line, sink, sinker with uh, wanting to become a surgeon. So I went into general surgery residency and with the thought of pediatric surgery as that focus from that background. And with my time, I did a critical care fellowship at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. And in the NICU, we had a lot of babies coming in, being born with anorectal malformation, particularly cloaca patients. And I thought they were the most fascinating patients. However, a lot of them in the complicated anorectal malformation patients were sent to Ohio for their care. So then I decided to do the pediatric colorectal fellowship after my general surgery training in Ohio to have more exposure and experience with pediatric colorectal surgery. And within those years of doing the pediatric colorectal surgery and the minimally invasive pediatric surgery fellowships at Nationwide Children's Hospital, we had the adult patients, the adult anorectal malformation patients coming to see us in the office. And they all had this the same story of they had gone to so many different hospitals, really well-known medical facilities in the United States, really big names in colorectal surgery. And no one really understood their disease process. No one understood what anorectal malformation was. They didn't understand what surgeries they had had. And no one was really able to give them a really complete 
offerings of what the possibilities of helping them were. And they all came to us, you know, oftentimes with just such frustration and anger and sadness and fear and resentment and all these emotions of years and years of kind of being pushed off by other, other providers and other surgeons. And through that experience, and it was just having just the vast volume of those same patients coming in with the same stories that made me think, you know, at that time it's 2017, 2016, that we really need to be doing better as a medical community and a surgical community. So then I decided to do an adult colorectal fellowship in, a, in addition to my pediatric colorectal fellowship so I could be the person to help take care of those patients into adulthood. I know from personal experience with talking to a lot of adults who I've spoken to in our adult group who have referred them to you, it's it's been life-changing for so many of our uh, adult community, Ellie, what you are doing. Because as you say, I like to use, I know, I, I, I know it's not the best word, but in a, in a lot of cases we were abandoned by the uh, medical community yeah. once we leave the paediatric care. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I mean, that's how it oftentimes is. The pediatric patients and pediatric colorectal world get really great care and really comprehensive care. And then it just kind of falls off the plate from there. You work with Ohio State University Medical Center. So is that where you do, you look after the adult patients? Yeah, that's right. So I see patients at a Nationwide Children's Hospital, but I also see adult patients at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. So it's the adult affiliate um, in Ohio. So I see patients both in the pediatric setting and then in the adult setting. I also do bread and uh, regular bread and butter colorectal surgery. So inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, rectal cancer, colon cancer, diverticulitis, hemorrhoids, uh, pelvic floor disorders, just the kind of run of the mill colorectal things, but then also take care of the transitional care patients within the adult uh, center as well. That's where I wanted to talk to you about is, can you give us a rundown of the wonderful transitional care program that you've initiated? Yeah, absolutely. So the transitional care program helps to take care of patients throughout their lifetime. So we take care of patients in, their, in the pediatric setting at Nationwide. And then starting at the age of about 12, we start our annual readiness transition surveys. And that means that every year we talk about what transitional care is and what that means as far as getting the patient ready to eventually transition to adult care. So getting the patient and the family members, the patient, uh, the parents, getting them ready to be autonomous and taking care of themselves and having the parents kind of take the back seat during those clinic visits, letting the patient themselves get ready to be the, their own advocate, make their own appointments, know when they have uh, medication refills that are due. And we, in this readiness to transition survey, we ask them every year the same questions and it helps us identify where they feel comfortable and where they may have deficits and where they need assistance. And our social workers, our psychologists, uh, the gynecologists, the urologists, and the colorectal surgeons all work together to fill those deficits or fill those voids and help them and we give them kind of tips and tricks to improve upon that so that next year when they fill out the survey, hopefully we've made some progress. And then letting them know that at some point we will transition them to Ohio State to the adult care center where we have a similar multidisciplinary team to take care of them, but more properly in an adult setting, an adult way so that they can be cared for along with, you know, adult uh, comorbidities that are uh, prevalent in the population as well. 
So with those surveys, do you actually get the patients to fill them out at that age or do the parents do their own? Yeah, so they have they get two. The patient gets one and the parent gets one and they both fill out their own. And this helps us because sometimes the patient may not even know, you know, at the early stages may not know some of these things, but their parent knows a little bit more. And then eventually that kind of changes where the parent starts knowing a little bit less as the patient gets to be maybe 17, 18 years old. And the patient obviously is, knows a little bit more about their own care, what their feelings and their comfort levels are. But I think that also helps the parent because they've been so involved in taking care of their yeah their child and worrying for them and doing all these things to really be their advocate and fight for them in many instances to get them the best of care. So I do think it's really hard to all of a sudden let go and say, you know, just like any transition through parenthood, right? It's hard to see your your child go through the different stages. So I think this helps the parent have more just understanding of how we're helping their child and know that their child is being empowered and taught and slowly progress to transition, that it's not something that just happens one day and we just, you know, dispose of their care and say, okay, good luck in the adult world, but we're able to slowly transition them. And I think the other thing that can be comforting to parents is that I'm the same surgeon that they see both at the pediatric place and the adult uh, uh, facility. So this way there's more there's more continuity of care and there's less an uncertainty and there are less feelings of unknown and um, kind of worry about what's to come when they don't know what's happening. And you can't underestimate how important that is to have that continuity of care. And with social media now and Facebook groups, et cetera, the parents do read a lot of the horror stories about the adults. Yeah, absolutely. About not knowing who to go to. So to have that reassurance of someone like yourself is just, it's priceless, really. You you mentioned about the psychologist attached to the centre. Are you finding you refer the, the adolescents to the psychologist as you start to learn, as they start to get a voice more? Well, at our centre, we have the luxury of having a, a psychologist who's involved in every patient's care. We, they do screening testing as far as assessing what the needs are. And it's very easy to kind of bring them into our clinic because they're a part of our clinic. So patients that are identified that have issues that maybe need um, some extra attention if they're having issues with adjustment or anxiety or depression, we've found that if we intervene and get them support and the uh, assistance that they need, that they're able to, I think, have a much better long-term outcome. And so I, I think it's much easier than in other healthcare centers where when you place a referral right now, mental health and healthcare providers and psychologists are such a high commodity right now. And the wait list is sometimes six to plus months just to get to be seen by some of these professionals. And we're just so lucky that someone's in our clinic so they don't have that lag time Yep. They have that support from an early on basis. And so I think that that gives us a, a much better strong footing to be able to help patients and identify issues before they become bigger issues. As everyone who listens to the podcast knows, I'm very strong on the mental health side of things. How do you find your patients coming through? What's the sort of like the ratio that may have issues with anxiety or depression, et cetera, when, when they get to that adolescent age? I think it's a lot higher than 
what we've previously estimated. We're right now starting to do some research to get actual numbers on that data. Um, right. You know, I think it, it, it's so multifactorial because mental health issues doesn't just affect patients with chronic illness, with anal rectal malformation. It's so, so widespread with social media and all the things that, that kids and adolescents have to go through these days. But I think it's with when you have a chronic medical condition and you have, you know, you're in and out of the hospital, you may have ongoing issues with your medical problems that definitely heightens things more and makes, you know, if you're, if it's difficult to attend work or to attend school because of your medical issues or social activities are hindered or outings with your friends, that definitely, I think, adds and increases the already heightened um, anxiety and depression that that kids have. And I think we overall really underestimate the extent of the problem, certainly in, in patients with chronic medical conditions. And I'm hoping that we can do better to, to make better progress for the future. Oh, that's great. That's been addressed. Now, what do you think are the most common issues that your adolescent and adult patients come to you with? Probably either constipation or fecal incontinence seems to be the biggest issue uh, from the colorectal side of things. And also sometimes patients just wanting to know what their anatomy is and what surgery they had and not really understanding what the surgery was, that maybe they were told, you didn't have an anal opening and now you do. And there's so much more to it than that. So we're able to not only give them that peace of mind to talk through them about what their anatomy looks like and what surgeries they have, because a lot of patients never really had anyone explain to them what anal rectal malformation is, what are all the things that comes with it. So that I think is a very significant thing that, that patients ask about. Also getting on a good bowel regimen to give them the confidence to go about their life, to live their life to the fullest extent that they can, whether that's because of constipation or fecal incontinence. And the other thing we get asked a lot too is what are their potentials for fertility? And that's something that a lot of parents have anxiety for, and maybe the child doesn't think about it too much. But as they get older, they start to become curious about those things too, and wondering what their future fertility may look like. So we're so fortunate to have our absolutely amazing adolescent gynecologists and our urologists within our clinic space to help address those questions in a very detailed and very thorough manner. There's no blame apportioned to anyone with the lack of the understanding, but you know, anyone that was born more than say 10, 15 years ago, because there wasn't a lot of centers around and the normal pediatrician that would operate on the child, that might be the only ARM patient they've ever operated on. Absolutely. And that goes to along the lines of it's been lifelong we've known it as imperfect anus, but now we everyone addresses it sort of like the specialist addresses anorectal malformation. So, but you talk to some people now, they don't even know anorectal malformation exists because they only know it as an imperforate anus. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And they don't know that those two things are the same thing, even though they might be a surgeon, they might not know. So it's hard. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I suppose, I don't know how that can be fixed because when even when the uh, you you could relate to this when the you're doing the general surgery coming through your schooling the medical school and all that do the would they still would they classify it as an anorectal malformation now or would they still think look at it as an imperfect anus? 
The nomenclature is definitely changing. And part of my purpose is not only to help take care of patients through adulthood and, and help with that transition, but also to help education on the side of the adult colorectal world. And that's part of my mission as well, is having that education space with ASCARS, which is our American Society for Colorectal Surgeons, to help educate the colorectal surgeons and move that nomenclature forward and move it kind of into the future, but also help with the, the education of the fellows that are coming through our Ohio State program, our Ohio State Colorectal fellows uh, in the adult program come and rotate with us at Nationwide so that through the years, I'm hoping that more and more adult colorectal surgeons are familiar and comfortable with taking care of patients with complex colorectal diseases so that not everybody has to travel such a far distance that we have more of a widespread base throughout the United States of ability to take care of, of the patients. So that's also one of my missions and my goals that I'm trying to work on. But I, I think there's absolutely a gap in the education and the knowledge base between the pediatric and the adult communities. And that just has to do with the wide variety of training that we do. Um, you know, they say our education is like drinking from a fire, fire hose. There's just so much volume of materials. So they may just get small little bits of information, but maybe not enough to really take care of comfortably take care of a complex patient. So we're hoping to change that. Has it been frustrating for you when you're dealing with the adult colorectal colleagues that a lot of them have the attitude that ARM is a pediatric issue only? I think that the more I talk to people, the more I talk to colorectal surgeons, and the farther out they get in their own practice and their own training, they realize that patients with anorectal malformation are adults and they're coming to coming to them with their adult problems and they can no longer just say, oh, it's pediatric because the pediatric surgeons don't want to or can't in their facility take care of a 40 or a 50 year old or, you know, a 70 year old. And so it, it then does fall upon their lap or in their clinic. And then they're, you know, they reach out to me and I try, you know, and give them the best advice that I can and help support local care if I can, but always give the option for them to send their patients to me. But I think more and more they're realizing about the, the great breadth of patients that are out there that do need help and do need assistance. And it's absolutely an issue that needs to be dealt with in the, in the adult uh, surgical community and not not in the pediatric world. Yeah, it's all it's all just because we turn eighteen, we don't don't stop having the condition, do we? That's right, absolutely. A lot of the adult patients aren't aware of sort of like the advances that we've had in the IAARM community, such as the Malone ACE procedure. And that are you surprised how the lack of understanding it is with adults that there are options now? Well, I mean, in the sense that adult colorectal surgeons don't really do many antegrade options or sacostomies. And so I guess it's it's not too surprising that that doesn't get offered to them because it's not in the toolkit of many colorectal surgeons. Some do, but I think it's very, very rare. I think it's more common that the patient gets the antegrade option placed as a child and then they're an adult still with it. And then they have trouble sometimes finding someone who understands what it is or helping them with making adjustments to their regimen that can be equally difficult, or even just if they have a chait tube or sacostomy or some kind of device, getting that changed and someone to order those supplies for them, I think that can be very difficult. I think sometimes 
the Antigrade option is an, an option for a, a new placement for adults, but just as much we found that the retrograde enema system like a Navina or a Peristine commercially available um, retrograde enema system is just as effective as an antigrade option, right. but doesn't have to have surgery. So if you have a patient coming to you who's had multiple abdominal surgeries and certainly another surgery is for one, usually not desired by the patient. You know, they say the last thing I want is another surgery. I've had so many and they may have had complications from them. And, and that can definitely add to the complexity of going into someone's abdomen. Again, sometimes their appendix was taken or they just may have so much scar tissue that an another surgery may not be very feasible or just desirable. So the retrograde enema system we found at our center to be very well tolerated as well as achieves the same goals as the antigrade option. But, but you're absolutely right. That's not something either that a lot of the adult colorectal surgeons use routinely in their practice or are aware of or know how to manage when they need to make adjustments when things aren't going quite right. So that's something we're, we're working on too. But we did a study at our center where we had for our adult patients who went through our bowel management program had over 85% able to achieve being continent and clean and dry on the retrograde enema system through our bowel management program. So we think that's a viable option for patients going forward who, who wish to avoid surgery to give them the same quality of life and the outcomes that they might have with them alone. Each case is different, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Every, you know, every patient's just a little bit different. Everyone has unique circumstances. And so, you know, we have to take everyone's case specifically into consideration as individuals. What do you believe are the, the most important issues moving forward that adolescents and adult IAARM patients are facing and you see that sort of like just keep on coming up that you would like to research further, et cetera? Gosh, there, there are a lot of them. I think for me, access to care is a big issue. Having more adult transitional care providers throughout the United States, throughout the world who are able to take care of patients. I'm always very happy to take care of patients and see them from, from wherever they come. But I do understand how much of a burden it is to come and travel, to take off time of work, the financial um, disruption that that costs. And sometimes insurance does cover out-of-state care, sometimes it doesn't. I will never understand the US insurance systems. I'm sorry, I just can't grasp it. And I'm not sure I can explain it in a podcast or even in my <laughs> lifetime, if I'm being honest. It is complex, and I'm sure that I don't fully understand it. It is not always in the best interest of the patient, unfortunately. But I think if we could improve access to care, I think that would be a huge improvement. Improve that also, along with that, improve the education, the understanding of the adult providers and their ability to provide that care but also continue the multidisciplinary approach that we provide to the pediatric patients into adulthood so we can take care of those kind of aging concerns like the pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic floor prolapse issues that patients have, the continuing fecal incontinence and constipation issues, as well as making sure that we're, that we're supporting patients from a psychological mental health aspect too. I think that's very important to always do those screening questions and always make sure that we have the, the support for the patients and the guidance so that we can make sure that we're providing the best overall health care for, for the patients, not just for you know the colon, but that we're not looking at the patient like a single system, but looking at the patient as a whole so we can improve on their quality of life for, for all aspects of that care.
Yeah, you just touched on the pelvic floor, and I must admit, the conference I went to last year, there was a lot more emphasis talked about on pelvic floor physiotherapy, etc. That's more than I've had heard previously. Do you think that's changed as well? For sure, absolutely, and I think some of that has a large part to do with as we're joining our our adult colorectal colleagues and sharing knowledge with them. I think that bit of education has come from the adult colorectal providers because as adult colorectal surgeons in my fellowship, pelvic floor physical therapy was very strong and is a very strong part of our practice to improve the the physical health of the pelvic floor to strengthen the muscles and the nerves. And there are very specialized trained uh, pelvic floor physiotherapists and that's all they do. And that wasn't something that was really touched upon in the pediatric world. And I think part of it is that people, that there weren't pelvic floor physical therapists for children because people didn't want to talk about the pelvic floor with children or talk about muscles and nerves and pooping and how to poop properly and how to strengthen those nerves and muscles together. But because we've identified patients who have weakness in the pelvic floor and laxity to muscles and nerves in anorectal malformation and other pediatric diseases, or I started talking to my adult pelvic floor physical therapist saying, you know, I've got these patients with this congenital condition. Some of them are 9, 10, 15 what would you think about seeing them in your clinic? Do you think you could help them? So we started having the conversation and, and just having that that close-knit community between our pediatric and our adult center, I think just lends to such evolved thinking and such just synergistic minds. And they said, you know what, I think we can help those patients. So they started coming over from OSU, giving talks to our nurse practitioners. And then we started sending patients to the OSU pelvic floor physical therapists. And we saw such improvement from patients, from the patient reported outcomes and from the pelvic floor physical therapists that we've actually started having pediatric pelvic floor physical therapists at Nationwide. And they've been such an improvement to our practice. So they specialize on the pediatric side of things. And it's not only been at our center, this is something through the education that we've done has progressed to other centers through the PCPLC, through the kind of national organizations of uh, pediatric colorectal care, that it's become something much more mainstream, very similar to how it has been in the adult colorectal world. And I know there's a lot more that we can continue to do on that front and to continue, you know, it's like, I always tell patients, it's like going to the gym, pelvic floor physical therapy, they have to have repeated sessions to retrain that pelvic floor. But I can't help but think if we're starting so much earlier in these pediatric patients, can we perhaps change the natural history or improve outcomes for patients as they grow into adulthood? Can we improve this pelvic organ prolapse that patients have? And I think that's one of the hopes that we hope to achieve in the future for this patient population that we, you know, just having that community of the the surgeons together has, I think, made a a big difference in in what we were able to do. Because five years ago, we just weren't talking about these things. I was shocked at how uh, much it was promoted last year at the PDN conference with the few of the sessions that, and I don't know whether in the past, you know, the old school surgeons probably didn't even consider it. Well, a lot of them didn't know it existed because yeah, it yeah, is such yeah, a nuanced, yeah. specialized thing. And it's 
very much used in the in pediatric or sorry adult colorectal it's very much used in gynecology adult side urology adult side so you know it's one of those things where you when you build that bridge that communication flows both ways and i think that's one of the the benefits we've had with our our close community with the adult surgeons from when you first started looking after colorectal patients to now what have you seen evolve well i've i've definitely seen a lot more interest in transitional care where when I started asking around, you know, when I went on my adult colorectal fellowship interviews throughout the entire country, looking for a place to train and having the discussion, telling people, I want to do adult colorectal transitional care. People looked at me like, wow, I've never heard of that. We don't do that. No one does that. And don't we need that? And why hasn't anyone done that in the, in the, in the past? And to me, you know, it seemed that people do that for diabetes. They do that for congenital hearts, for transplant. A lot of pediatric congenital conditions have a very organized and stable transitional program. And it did seem a little obtuse or a little odd that one of the, those things hadn't been planned. But what I'm seeing now is that more and more, there's more and more interest for that, not only from the centers, for, for the colorectal centers, but from different hospitals, different institutions, but also from, from general surgery trainees, from, from the resident side of things, people have told me, you know, I always did like some certain aspects of pediatric surgery, and I liked aspects of pediatric adult colorectal surgery. Could I do something like you do? Could I do both? And those were things that beforehand, you know, hadn't even been thought of before. So, you know, I'm happy to say that there are more centers uh, coming on online and perhaps even more in the future, and that together we can kind of build this network to take better care of patients overall. Well, you definitely are a pioneer, Ali. You will always be known as the first person that what you're doing for our community is incalculable, I could say. Well, so, I hope not to be the last, so hopefully no, there no. are many more to join. Yeah, I was actually, I was actually chatting yesterday to Dr. Erin Teeple at um, yes, yeah, at the uh, Children's National DC, in yeah. Washington, who's going along the same lines as what you're doing. Absolutely, yeah, we're hoping that uh, we can have a, another great center out there out east. Do you think that having the adults finding their voice and talking about it has helped motivate yourself and others? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, that's absolutely a great point because when we don't know what the need is, it's hard to know the extent of the issues or the problems or how we can help. So if there are lots of patients out in the in the community and out in the world that aren't seeking care because they've been told there's nothing to do or they don't know that there's anything to do or they don't know that there's someone that can help them, then that becomes this kind of silenced population that is not just being treated properly. But when patients have a voice to advocate for themselves and say, I'm here, I need, I would like some help. Can you help me? And when you know what the denominator of the issue is, I think then you're able to really see how much more importance needs to be addressed. And I think it also helps with the pediatric surgeons 
building their own bridges within their own communities, within their own centers to, to other adult colorectal surgeons to ask for help and ask for assistance. And that's how they start, you know, working together to help provide care for their, their pediatric patients and knowing that they then have a plan going forward. But I think you're absolutely right without having, you know, kind of an outcry from the community to say like, Hey, why aren't we having the same degree of help we used to when we were children and not having an understanding of what the issues are, how we can help or change? I mean, I, I learned so much at the pull through network when I go to those meetings every other year when they have them. And I learned so much about what I can be doing better as a surgeon for my pediatric patients, but also for my adult patients. I mean, I learned just so much. And our goal is always to learn from our adult patients and hopefully make changes to what we do in practice for our pediatric patients so we can make our overall care better. So we can just always continue to improve upon things. But you're absolutely right. That I think has made a huge difference in the push from, from both sides of the, the fence. I'm glad we've got someone like you to listen to us. <laughs> Ears are wide open. That's for sure. Yeah. So Ellie, is there anything that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I actually do have a question from the the patient side of things or from a, a patient perspective. What are things that we as either pediatric colorectal surgeons or adult colorectal surgeons, what are things that we should be doing better, could be doing better? What things would you like to see from us? The main thing that I find that comes up in our one in 5,000 information group is just that the parents are so concerned about what happens next. They're getting to that age now where the transition is probably starting. They're thinking, what's going to happen? And what you've spoke about today is just so important. So it'll give so many parents that sense of comfort. What age do you think the kids start to understand that they are, I hate the word use different, but haven't got the same body mechanics as others? I think it's probably earlier than what we think it is. We have started doing some uh, research looking at body image and how um, interrectal malformation affects patients like play dates, sleepovers, sporting events. When do they tell their best friend about their their medical conditions? And you know, do they feel comfortable telling those things to significant others? How does that affect your dating? And I think we're trying to, you know, starting to get a better handle on that. But I think it's much earlier than we think, because when you look at what the child's development is, they really do recognize same and different very early on, like kindergarten, first grade age, they start recognizing differences of how, you know, that they see just abstractly between themselves, and they start seeing themselves a little bit different. So I think it's probably in that fairly young grade school age. And there, it may be very subtle and not very complete understanding of what those differences are. But I think those kind of progress and grow. And certainly, by the time they're like, maybe, you know, fourth, fifth grade, they really have a fair understanding of how they're behaviors and their surgeries and the things that they have to do in their daily life is different than other people. So I I think really having a solid foundation of communication between themselves, their providers, psychologists, social work, all those people to help support them can really help them have a solid foundation of their sense of self and pride. And I think having hopefully a better self image and a better body image as well as they grow up. 
Have you found that your patients are a lot more willing to talk openly about it now than might have that might have happened in the past? I'm hoping so. You know, I will admit readily that I have plenty of patients that come and you only get to see, you know, the top of their forehead because they've got their cell phone in their hand. And I don't know what things were like in clinics when kids didn't have cell phones in their hands. Um, And maybe they paid more attention or maybe there was something else, you know, that took the place like a a Nintendo or a Discman or a Walkman or I don't know. I'm I'm definitely dating myself for people (laughs) who might not know what those things are. I won't even cons- tell you what I used to do because none of that was ever even thought of back then. <laughs> but I mean, a, a, a lot of times it's hard to get kids to open up. It really is. And the parents do a lot of the talking. And I know they're listening. Kids are definitely listening to everything that we're saying. And they're only looking down, but I know they hear and they understand a lot more than we think they do. I'm hoping that having all the kind of ancillary support that we have in our staff with child life, with social work, with psychology, and having that continuity of multidisciplinary team gains trust in our team and allows kids and teenagers to open up to us about issues and problems that they're having. But I also know it's 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 hard for kids to talk to adults and, you know, and it's social media is you know, they're, that's what they're on. They're on their TikTok. They're watching yep. their videos in the clinic. So it's it's hard to compete with that. But, you know, we do we do our best to try. Oh, that's great. For a parent now who've got a child who, you know, they're probably getting to that starting to their school age now. And, you know, they've been through all the operations and they've probably been through the potty training. But now they're getting to that stage where they're going, they're going to have to go to school and they worry about whether they're going to have accidents, et cetera. What would your greatest advice be to those parents? Well, I think that has got to be one of, you know, a large source of anxiety for parents because they want their kids to feel comfortable. They don't want their kids to be limited. Every parent wants their kid to have all the opportunities and choices going forward. So I think that that's definitely a big concern. I think making sure that you have a good bowel regimen and that you have a team that you trust and can work with if things don't or things are going a little bit off because as a child is growing um, they're getting taller they're you know they're getting more of an adult body type their diet habits may change sometimes their medications change all those things may change how their body adjusts to their bowel regimen so they may need, need adjustments as they grow so I think it's a really important to have that freedom of communication to talk to your your the team that you're working with about things before they become problematic. I think that's the biggest thing. And just knowing that you have a support team to help you if issues arise probably, you know, I think hopefully does decrease some of that parental anxiety. You know, I think to a certain extent, you always worry a little bit for your child, no matter you know how things are going, and you always want the best for them. And that parental worry is never going to be gone. But hopefully just knowing that you have support and you have options to change things and make adjustments if, if needed. And we never think that what kind of regimen that someone is on at one point in their life is going to be the exact same their whole life. We know there's going to be hormonal adjustments when you're going through puberty, Hormones make such a difference in how your body, you know, handles things and changes the way your digestive tract works. We know that happens. We know during pregnancy that occurs too. And I think just having a faithful team that you trust and rely on can help. That's really great advice, Ellie. And following on from that, 
I find that there's a lot of parents that have never experienced being at a colorectal center or don't even know what a bowel management re regime is. And due to financial circumstances or where they live, they can't get to a colorectal center. What should they do? I think the best thing, we used to be able to do telehealth. You know, I'm not sure how things are in Australia, but in the United States during COVID, there was a lot more kind of reciprocity with medical licensing. And we used to be able to do telehealth. We used to be able to do bowel management remotely, but now they've really kind of scaled back on a lot okay. of that government supported system. So we can't do a telehealth anymore. So if someone lives far away from a center, really the best thing that they can do is work with their local pediatrician or their local primary care doctor who's caring for them and have that person reach out to us because we don't have a medical license to take care of them in their state. Yeah, well, that's what I was sort provider, of like trying to get at. Do you, yeah. do you, are you, are you willing to talk to the local? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And okay. work with them so they can help them. They would be the ones prescribing the medications, the x-rays, but we're happy to help kind of guide them because we can't actually, you know, provide medical care in a state where we're not licensed. There are those limitations, but we're happy to work with their local team as much as we can. And it's, you know, it's limited. It's not the same as seeing someone in person. You know, it's not the same as doing a physical exam, but we try to do the best that we can, you know, in those limited circumstances. Uh, no, that's great. That's really great advice. And I'm sure it's going to be very helpful. Anyway, Ali, it's been so wonderful chatting to you. The information that you provided and the knowledge you have is just excellent. And I know there's going to be so many people who have who have listened to this podcast who are going to feel a lot more educated. So, and I can't, on behalf of all our adult and IA community, I can't thank you enough for everything you do, Ellie. Well, thank you so much for having me, Greg. It's really wonderful and such a, a real honor to be invited on this forum. And I'm just so happy to have this technology where we across the world today can have this wonderful conversation about our, our interactive malformation community. And thank you for all that you do for your work and all the groundbreaking things that you have done to forward your, the community of interactive malformation to forward research to help us understand as providers how we can do a much better job. And without you, I think we'd still be in so much of the dark. So thank you for what you do as well. Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I do what I can where I can, and it's all for to help the kids of today to grow up and have a better better life, as better quality of life that they can. So all right, Ali, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks, Greg. Bye. Bye.